Please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. We'll be looking at verses 13 and 14 together tonight. It can be found on page 965 in the Pew Bible in front of you. Kirk, I won't add much to that other than I remember being on the stage during my own ordination, I guess it was, and Amber was honored as well, and I think our kids were just about at the same age that yours are now, and um, my encouragement to you as you head to Birmingham is to love your wife, love those kids. It's going to go by quickly, and so they're your priority as you make this transition, brother. We love you. Um, I was taught by our, our former pastor, George Robertson, how to construct a sermon, he taught through Christ-centered preaching, and he said there's three elements that have to be in every sermon. Explanation, illustration, and application. Application is the last, but it is not the least. Tonight, we're coming to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, and it, there's a turning point here in the 13th verse. Jesus has explained the principles of the text He's illustrated them along the way, and now he gets into the application. The disciples are at a figurative fork in the road. Jesus is standing before them, and he's saying there's two diverging paths right here. If you're to follow me, this is the direction that you need to go. But before he calls them into action, he describes the different paths, knowing that by nature, we choose the path that the crowds follow. We choose the path of least resistance. We don't make decisions with eternity in mind. So Jesus pauses and describes the two paths before his disciples of all ages and says this, beginning in verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you not only call us to know of you, you call us to action. You bring us to certain points in our lives. And you not only tell us where to go, you call us into it. You give us strength for the journey. And these brief moments we have together looking at this text, would we be mindful of the journey that we're on and how we're to finish it well. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. It's about 10 years ago in a small town Wildwood, New Jersey, on the southern shore of Jersey. Seventeen-year-old girl walked out to her car, cranked the engine, and unbelievably there was someone in her car. Even more, this someone had a gun pointed towards her. Now while of course she was shocked at the moment that it happened, she immediately recognized the woman as Mrs. Nava. You see, a 17-year-old girl a few weeks ago gave birth to a child. 
And she knew that she was not equipped to take care of the child, so she put it up for adoption. And Mrs. Novel was one of the two families that it was supposed to go to, but actually went to another family over in Philadelphia. Miss Nava, with the gun pointed at her, said, drive, drive to where that family is. I'm going to get my child. So the teenager took off and started driving. It was about a two-hour car ride to get to where the family was. As she was driving along the way, she was doing what you'd be doing. You're looking at people next to you, hoping somehow to get the attention of another person. As she began to approach the Benjamin Franklin Bridge, which connects Jersey over to Pennsylvania, a congested bridge of sorts, she said that, I've got to do something. Now's the moment. I've got to get someone's attention. As she's driving over the bridge, she noticed a police cop was on the side. At that moment, with, I'm sure, adrenaline coursing through her veins, she grabbed the steering wheel, hit the accelerator, like a needle through thread between two cars, and boom! slammed right into the police officer's car and she got somebody's attention all right the officer came out with gun drawn the miss nava was in the back seat completely startled by the impact of the car and she was eventually arrested and sent to jail for a number of actions that she had done the police officer commented a few days moments later about this young woman he goes you know most people in this situation they just keep moving along most people, when they come to this, this fork in this road, this moment of, where they need to make this decisive decision to do something, they just pass it by. But not this young lady. When this moment came before her, she made a decision, and this decision likely saved her life. This is where we find ourselves in the text tonight. Jesus, for the past two chapters for the sermon, is talking about where life can ultimately be found. And he brings his disciples to this very moment, and he, he's saying it's decision time. Which of these two paths are you going to enter onto? To help you understand the paths, Jesus then begins to give descriptors that we might know which path to take what to expect along the way, and what the ultimate destination of it will be. First of all, we're told that the path of Christ's followers, it begins with the narrow gate. You know, one way to understand this idea of narrow, I think it's with the term, uh, it's exclusive. It requires a certain set of credentials to enter into it. I was recently at the Atlanta airport. That airport, like any other airport, you walk up to it and there's glass doors, multiple doors. You get anywhere close to them and they just automatically open. It's so easy to walk into the airport. They're wide, no work was required at all. You get to that point and everybody's welcome. But you know what happens next. It's called TSA, right? And you start to walk and there's just this line, this single file line that serpentines and serpentines and serpentines and serpentines. It goes on and on. And you wait in that line, one at a time, 
until it's your particular time. And then you walk up. And the whole time you're nervous that you've forgotten something. But you walk to the front of the line and you go to the security officer. And he basically says, I need your credentials. At that particular moment, you need two things, right? You need a valid ID and you need a boarding pass to get any further. Without either one of those, you don't go anywhere at all. This, in part, is what Jesus is saying about the narrow gate. There are credentials that are required to get in. We've already learned what those credentials are at the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Chapter 5, it says, blessed are the poor in spirit. This idea of poor in spirit, it's a spirit that says, I am undeserved of God's grace. I'm unable to make this relationship, this breach that's taken place between me and God possible. So I'm no longer relying on my credentials. I'm relying on the credentials of another. It's not my past that's going to get me in. It's the past of another. If I had to push this illustration just a little bit further... I was with my son Jack to get onto the airport. So we're waiting in TSA line, the narrow gate, and they call us forward. And he's right about at that age where I'm not sure if he's too old to go with me or if he's supposed to wait by himself. He looks at me, I look at him. I don't know. Come on, let's go together. So we walk up there, and the agent says, looks at him, and he goes, Who is this? I say, He's my son. He said, Does he have a boarding pass? And I pulled it up on my phone and I showed him the boarding pass. He looked at Jack. He said, who is, who is that? He said, that's my dad. The agent sat back in his seat, and he led us through. Again, this is the idea that Jesus is saying right at the beginning here. To get in through the narrow gate, what got Jack through the gate, it was his relationship to me as father and to my boarding pass that I had that got us in. What Jesus says throughout the whole of Scripture is that the entry into the kingdom of God, it comes to this relationship with your heavenly Father. It comes through with his boarding pass where it narrows down, and that's where it begins. It's a narrow gate because it's exclusive. It's a narrow gate in the sense that you must leave certain things behind as you begin the journey. Self-righteousness, self-centeredness, self-admiration, self-indulgence, self-sufficiency, and all those self-appendages that just attach themselves to you in life. One more airport illustration, and I promise I'll be done with them. I don't go to the airport that much. I pick up on a lot of things uh, this last time. I went on one of these cut-rate airlines that are it's very strict about the size of the carry-on luggage. Walking up, you get finally to the gate, you're walking past the gate onto the bridge to the plane, and there's this little metal frame right outside the gate, and your bag has to fit in there. I walked up to mine, and fortunately it fit, um, but the man just in front of me, oh, he was having a time. He went to push the bag, and it was a soft duffel bag, but I mean, nope, pulled it out. He did what you would do, what I would do. He got his clothes, rolled them up, you know, stuffed them, stuffed them, tried it in. Nope. 
said, I'm going to compress the bag. He's standing on his bag, trying to get this bag to, like, to go down. But he gets up and the bag just conforms right back to the same size, puts it in. Nope. He realized at that moment, I've got to do something here. Now, when you go on a trip, you don't bring your least favorite items if you've got one carry-on bag, do you? You bring your favorite items in there. So he's opened his bag and he's looking, what am I going to throw away so I can get on this particular plane? It's a narrow gate. And those things which you prize the most, that is what the Lord is calling us to shed as we go on. He shed those items, he threw them away, and he was able to get onto the plane. At the beginning of our following the Lord, these former desires that we once had, filled with self, Jesus says, take those and dump them. That's not for this journey. The journey that I have begins with the narrow gate. Two other words he says then about once you get through the gate, what should we expect of the journey itself? He says two words. He says that it's going to be hard and those who are going to be on the journey are few. B.B. Warfield wrote an interesting article about this idea of few. And he was basically asking the question, was Jesus in some way trying to suggest that there will only be a few people who are in heaven, who are going to make it through. Because elsewhere, right, Revelation talks about the multitude. Matthew 8 talks about from east to west, people will be there flooding more than we can actually count. So B.B. Warfield says, no, it, he's not trying to give a descriptor of the number of people that will be in heaven. Rather, he's talking about the strenuousness of the journey. You know, I liken it to that familiar phrase that used to be for the Marines, right? The few, the proud, the Marines. This branch of the military was not trying to give a quantitative assessment as to how many Marines there actually are. What it was saying is that in order to be a Marine, you better be prepared. It's just going to be strenuous. I think that's what Jesus was saying at this moment, that the journey ahead, it's going to be strenuous along the way it says it's going to be hard it's going to be suffering you know if you read these texts they're opposite of one another narrow gate wide gate easy hard and so you get to that point you might think to yourself okay is the suffering that's being is there a particular type or do only christians suffer is that what it's beginning to describe and if you're not a christian then don't expect suffering well, it takes about three minutes of watching the worldwide news to know that's not the case. Right, I mean, even in the last 10 days or so, the earthquake that just decimated the Turkey and Syrian border, tens of thousands of people passed away. The best estimates in the Turkey, 1% Christian population, Syria, 10%. There is a type of suffering and hardship that will be common to all mankind. But it's here as if Jesus is saying that there's a different type of suffering that as Christians we are to expect. The suffering, the best I understand it, it is this battle that takes place between our flesh and the spirit. 
I read this week a quote about this war. Very much, I feel at times, captures my life. It goes, this is a war of distortion. It seeks to make the most destructive things look tantalizing, desirable. It seeks to make the most wonderful things look unbearably boring. It seeks to make the most trustworthy things look unreliable. It seeks to make the one true fountain of joy look like a dry well and a broken cistern look like a spring of refreshment. I know exactly what that's talking about. That's this war that's taken place within the soul of a Christian. You know, in the 1600s, the best theologians of the world got together and for 10 years, they labored over describing this war that has taken place in our lives. They use these words to describe it. Continual and irreconcilable war that takes place between the flesh and the spirit. Remember this first time this idea of a continual war was presented to me as an evening worship service here 20 some years ago. That next day I actually had a dermatologist appointment of all places and I was at the dermatologist and I was 23 at the time or so, somewhere right around there, and next to me must have been a man who was 83. He struck up a conversation with me. He said, what are you in here for? Talking to me. I said, you know, believe it or not, I said, I'm working out of the paper mill and since I've gotten out, I sweat so much every single day and I'm, my face is completely breaking out like I'm a teenager again. I was there to get acne medicine. I said, I'm just so oily, I guess, the problem. He chuckled for a moment and he rolled up his sleeve and he had what must have been some form of eczema or something and just red skin, flaky skin, He said, my goodness, I wish I could have a little bit of that oil that you have. He goes, my skin is so dry at this particular moment. And he laughed for a moment. He said, how old are you? I said, 23. He says, I'm 83. Here we are both at the dermatologist. He said, it's always going to be something, isn't it? And I smiled. And I said, that's exactly what he was talking about last night from the sermon. It's always going to be something in our lives. A continual battle that is normal Christian living is that there is an irreconcilable continual warfare taking place between the flesh and the spirit and even more that very group of theologians says and there will be times where it appears that the flesh is actually winning that means you're losing it means you're struggling it means it's dark and sin seems to be over that's normal Christian living if you get to the place where you you don't know what that's like where you wonder what that warfare is like the question is not are you maturing the question is are you battling sin as you ought because Jesus says that's what normal Christian life is like the problem that I have with that with this battle is it challenges many of the values that I hold so dearly. I value comfort, not struggle. I value amusement, not musing over the inner battles of my life. I value lighthearted laughter 
and not deep reflection on the matters of repentance in life where the Lord needs to be working. And what Jesus is saying is that it's difficult. It's not an easy life. But in the end, in the end, it's what leads us back home to him. Final point, where does the road, the, the path that Jesus is describing ultimately lead to? I had a great time just reading through these two verses and just this, the contrast between the two is so noticeable. Um, when you read through them, it feels like you're more like you're at Diablo's than Vallarta. If you've been to Diablo's, what I love about Diablo's is you really don't have any choices. It's either you get a bowl or a burrito, you get chicken or beef, you get pinto beans, black beans, and that's pretty much your choices at the main. When you go to Vallarta's, right, you just have this massive menu this big, and I really don't even know where to begin. I just hand the menu to Amber. I say, I'll just get whatever you want. We'll just share it together. In the same way, this text tonight, it just is, con there's two choices throughout the entirety of it. It says, there's two entry points, broad and near. There are no other gates. There's only two ways, hard or easy, but nowhere in between. There's two crowds, large and small, no median size. And finally, it says that there are two destinations, destruction and life, and there is no alternative. It's hardly necessary to comment on how offensive that is to our modern sensitivities. What Jesus confirms here, what the entirety of Scripture says is that is the way of the world. That in the end, there's two destinations, one that leads to life and one that leads to death. You know, as I was thinking about this and just, I'd imagine in the wisdom of God, knowing that we don't naturally think about the end as we should. Our mind does not normally begin with that thought. It's one of the many reasons I think that he, in his infinite wisdom, gives us one day in seven, set apart, where he lowers the staircase of heaven, and we are able just to sit and think about all that is ours and will be ours in Christ. It's a discipline to do that, but those are the types of thoughts that will help you make it to the final destination. Not only are these thoughts needed, it's to remember that there is one before you who's on this path. This one who invited you into the gate, this one who's waiting for you at the end, is the same one who said, I will walk with you along the way. I was freshly reminded of this this week. Kirk suggested the last song that we're going to sing tonight. It's called A Narrow Little Road. I looked at the bottom of the song and I remembered immediately that it was Mo Leverett that wrote this song. And if you look at the date that it was written, it was 1995. 
Mo has been to our church many times. For those who don't know Mo, he grew up in Macon, Georgia, went to Mercer, went off to Covenant Seminary at the end of graduation. He decided he's going to begin a ministry down in the Ninth Ward in New Orleans, one of the most impoverished areas in the country. Right about this time that this song would have been written, Mo was in many ways sought after by judges, senators, the denomination had him as an adjunct professor to talk about how to build these types of ministries. And yet, little did he know that in the next 10 years or so, he said that both literal and metaphorical storms came into my life that I never was prepared for. The literal storm was a little storm called Katrina that wiped out New Orleans. For those of us who went down there and labored in that city for many years, we saw Mo's house. It was right next to the Desire Street Ministries, what was left of his house. It was just studs at that particular time. Mo had left the city at that time, was trying to cobble together what was left of Desire Street Ministries. And it was through that process, and I'm sure a much longer story that Mo said, the metaphorical storms of my life started to take place. Separated from his wife, momentarily reconciled with her, but then eventually they divorced. Most stayed in Jacksonville, Florida. Uh, it was in just in the last couple of years I had read that he was, it got out of ministry altogether. Um, still, when I say got out of ministry, still walking with the Lord, still trying to understand what the Lord would have from his next stage of life. In 2019, uh, sadly, his 26-year-old daughter passed away. This week, I went just to, hadn't heard anything much from him, so I went and uh, I found a podcast he had done with Nate Larkin, and he was describing these dark spaces of his life, and Nate Larkin, who came here a couple years ago, asked him, Mo, what has gotten you through these storms of life? And Mo said, there has only been one thing that has held me together through them. It's to know that on this road, on this path of Christianity, to know that my Savior walks with me along the way. That was just after his daughter passed away. I read this week that Mo actually had a, sensed a new call to go back down to New Orleans to start a new ministry. And it was right about that time that he began to essentially lose vision in one of his eyes. And even as right now, it's gone undiagnosed and they don't know what the cause of that is. You know, I, I would not say that I know Mo Leverett. I don't know the suffering that Mo Leverett has been gone through. Some of the suffering he would say came to me and some of it I brought on myself. But I do know this road that he's describing. I do know this narrow little road that we're called to live on as Christians. I know it's hard. I know it's continual. I know it's irreconcilable. But what the Lord says is that look to me. I brought you into the gate. I'm waiting at the end for you. And I will walk every step of the way with you on this journey. That I do know. We can sing this song tonight of this little road that God calls us to live on and look for him to bless us along the way. Let's pray. Father, would you give us the grace and strength for this journey as you call us home? Would we know and experience the hardship of this road 
that we might know the joy of you being with us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.